You're listening to The Gulf Stream, where we talk to fascinating guests that want to make the Gulf of Mexico, and moreover, the world, a more sustainable and more beautiful place. Don't worry about getting bogged down in scientific jargon or academic lecturing. On The Gulf Stream, we break down complex ideas into simple yet intriguing subjects that will help you be more informed and perhaps inspire you to create a better environment for all of us. After all, it takes people like you to make a difference in some of the toughest issues facing the earth today. Welcome to the Gulf Stream. This is David Yoskowitz, Executive Director of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies at Texas A&M University Corpus Christi and co-host of the Gulf Stream podcast. In this episode of the podcast, I sat down with Greg Stuns, Endowed Chair for Fisheries and Ocean Health here at HRI, and the Director of the Center for Sport Fish Science and Conservation, and soon to be the Interim Executive Director of HRI. Greg and I have known one another for many years. We've worked together, fished together, and though it's bittersweet that I leave HRI in early November to take on the role of Executive Director of Texas Parks and Wildlife, I'm honored to be handing off the leadership role to Greg. In this episode, we talked about some of our favorite memories of working together, the early days of HRI and the HRI model and how that came to be, what inspired Greg's passion for sport fish conservation, and so much more. Enjoy. Well, welcome, Dr. Greg Stuns, <laughs> to the Gulf Stream. Um, Greg, you are the endowed chair for uh, fisheries and, and ocean health and the director of the Center for Sport Fish Science and Conservation. You also wear a lot of other hats, which we'll, yeah. we'll get into today. I wanted to start off our discussion about when we might have first met on campus, and then you and I essentially joined HRI around the same time. But do you remember our first meeting by chance at all? Yeah, I'm trying to remember. You know, I know we've been here for pretty much the same exact amount of time. We're the same age. You know, our careers just kind of <laughs> converged here. But I, you know, what I distinctly remember was our initial meetings, you know, in the HRI conference room. Mm. But I'm sure we met, you know, just on campus meetings and yeah. stuff. I don't know. Do you? Do you yeah, I, I think, I think um, you know, I was in the College of Business at, the, at yeah. that time. You were in College of Science and Engineering. Um, we were both assistant professors, associate professors. Yeah. And I'm sure we had... Uh, gotten together at various, you know, faculty things. Yeah. But you were here at, by that time yeah. as well, right? I, I just kind of started, you know, kind of like you, we we both started here as sort of junior chairs, you know, yeah, yeah. and then sort of these research positions and worked our way up as, as it sort of mirrored the academic ranks that we went through. Right. And then in 2008 is when Larry came on and then had both installed, installed you and I as the final two yeah. Original of the six endowed chairs. That's right. Yeah. 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 And then when did the when did the Sport <clears throat> Fish Center come online? Yeah, that was really around 2015, something like that. Okay. You know, David, I have to go back and check the exact. I should know the exact. No, it would have been. No, no. So it would have been 2011 was when it, it, the donation was given. Yeah. Um, that's a Board of Regents approved center. So it took a little while to get through mm -hmm. the university administration to designate that official center. So um, 2012 and is when it really got kind Wait, of it started uh, kicking going. off. Yeah. And, and then yeah. in 2013 is when we finally kind of you open the door yeah yeah yeah, yeah. Okay. and then next yeah. so next year is the 10th anniversary yeah right? yeah right yeah yeah so we're we're rolling into that so good. a lot of excited things i hope planned for that 
Who, who originally um, helped set that up in terms of the financial support of that? Well, the CCA was integral in that. You know, I we've been talking about it for a long time. Larry and I had talked about even, you know, during his interview process and the need for a center really designated to um, look after research interests that are needed in the recreational fishing community. And of course, the, C- the CCA was a logical partner for that because of their advocacy efforts in that arena. So it made yeah. for a good good opportunity. Plus, we had already been doing research projects of mutual interest. So the fit was was just there. What is so is there anything else in the U.S. that is like the Sportfish Center? No, not not at all. That's like it of what we're doing. I mean, really dedicated to that, really working with anglers, sort of one of our hallmarks is our citizen science work where we really involve anglers in the in the scientific yeah. process through fish tagging and a variety of other yeah. other methods. There's another uh, research group on the, the um, east coast of Florida that does that does sport fish research, but they're not near as active. I mean, we're yeah. we're definitely it for the Gulf for sure. The, the flag is planted yeah, here, the, exactly <laughs> for sport fish and, science. And we've yeah. gotten well known because it, we we turned out the timing was right or whatever. The citizen science in general was sort of becoming a thing among many fields, and people were just hungry for sort of a different experience in yeah. fishing. And so when you can build science into it, it helps you become a better angler. They, they really want to start our, our Sharkathon tagging, kind of kick that off with all the, the shark anglers tagging for us yeah. through their catch and relief, relief efforts. And then that really took off. And now, of course, we're involved in all kind of different collecting real meaningful science from everyday anglers. So I, w- I want to come back to Sharkathon in a moment um, because what you all have done with that in particular, I yeah. think, speaks volumes of yeah. um you know, the Sport Fish Center, the, mm-hmm. the HRI model. Um, but I want to come back to that in a moment. <clears throat> what I what I want to start with, though, really is how did you get into this? I mean, what, what was it that as you were growing up or, you know, maybe as an undergraduate or, or what pushed you this yeah. direction? So yeah. can you give us a little well, sense of that? Ultimately, what pushed you was just my love for the outdoors of fishing and hunting and just just all things outdoor. And so, but I, I was first generation college student. I didn't know that, you know, I guess sort of my family, you went to college and you became a lawyer or a doctor. You know? that was kind of like, there <laughs> so were they're disappointed options. in you, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I was going to medical school literally up to the last minute. And this kind of gets back to the CCA. So did you have uh, a, like an under, undergraduate biology? Yeah, yeah. So it was straight up undergrad biology, very biomed focused, you know. Yeah. And so literally I was on the, the doorsteps of going in and, and, uh, uh, I happened to open a, a Texas Fish and Game magazine at the time, and the CCA had an article about this graduate scholarship. And I was like, wow, you can, you can get a graduate education, you know, working on fish and doing sport fish. And anyway, so long story, I checked into it as a wildlife and fisheries department college station. And I ended up doing that. Of course, my wife was like, <laughs> I thought I married an MD, not some <laughs> fish biologist. You know? But it seems to Too have worked to out. You yeah, in for exactly. So, but it seemed to have worked out. So yeah. I ended up getting the scholarship. And so that kind of is what med, made that. Um, and, and that covered essentially your, your graduate education. Yeah, it yeah. covered a large portion of that. And it was yeah. their first one. So it was a big deal. And that really came full circle when the CCA made the initial gift for the Sport Fish Center because I was a scholarship recipient. Now I'm in a professional role leading this new kind of growing Sport Fish Center. So, yeah. so that that really sort of sealed the linkages for our close relationships with that group. 
And then when you, what did, what did you study? What was your dissertation work in, in graduate school? Uh, what did, yes. What did you look at? So uh, technically my PhD and master's degree is in wildlife and fisheries, but yeah. really on the fishery side, obviously. But I studied flounder for my master's degree, which is still a big issue and something, you know, you, you'll be facing soon too. <laughs> and um, then for my dissertation, I studied redfish and their habitat okay. needs for redfish. Right. Right. And what did you find? Well, what we what we knew about redfish at the time, uh, well, back up on the flounder side, what, what was interesting there was it was very liberal bag limits. And mm. uh, there was really the, the upper size limit was lower than before they had a chance to spawn. So that was an issue. Of course, you don't want to be removing fish from the fishery before they've had a chance right. to spawn. But we had no science at the time to even know when that occurred. So that helped promote, you know, conservative management to make sure, you know, that that fishery is sustainable. And there's still some some issues to, to deal with in that fishery. On my dissertation, I studied red drum and the thought was red drum love seagrass for their nursery habitat. It was focused on what were the juvenile needs for these very, very small, you know, inch long kind of um, fish and smaller. And it turned out they like seagrass. And, and we we kind of knew that. However, I was up in Galveston area doing the work. And there's no seagrass, or at least it's very little. So it's like, well, what do they what do they do in areas that m much of the central north central Gulf doesn't have seagrass right. like we do, you know, here in, in the lower coast? And so it turned out they like marsh, and they like the edge of the marsh, mm -hmm. which is important, the spartina, the smooth cord grass. Um, and so that showed, you know, what what were some key areas you needed to protect for that iconic fishery. So they like that. They like that edge and they like, yeah, in the little creeks and kind of getting back in there. And get yeah, back exactly. Okay. Exactly. They don't like to get too far up in the marsh. Right. But right on that edge, pretty much, you know, we we'd say a meter on the, the seaward side of that marsh interface and then about a meter into it, you know, right. so about six or seven feet of area is sort of their main Where they can spot. escape into the marsh right. if something large comes along. Yeah. Trying to they can them. run out and feed, but get back in the habitat yeah. when something comes along. Yeah. yeah. And so you were, you did you did your graduate work. Um, you know, it was at College Station, Anum College Station, mm -hmm. um, but it, the field work was Galveston yeah. complex essentially. And then after that, where where did you go? Yeah, well, I had had worked out a, a nice deal in graduate school with uh, NOAA Fisheries, so the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And at the time, uh, similar to our um, CCME program we had here, they had, it was just a little more informal. It wasn't an organized kind of thing. And it was called a cooperative program. And the idea was they paid for part of your graduate education and you worked as a FTE, believe it or not, you know, in graduate school, which so I've heard of now. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm fully vested in the federal service from mainly service in grad school, which is yeah. kind of unusual at the time. Of course, that, that doesn't they don't have that anymore. But anyway, the, the, the main thing was you were essentially uh, offered a non-compete position once you graduated because you'd already been part of the, the system yeah. coming up. And so I worked for NOAA Fisheries in Galveston for um, a couple of years. And uh, we loved Galveston. It, it was a great job, but I really wanted the academic realm and have a little more freedom mm -hmm. to work on the things I wanted to. And so uh, my wife and I did a major remodeling on a really beautiful old, old home in Galveston. And about the day I wrote the check to pay that you know, remodeling fee was the day this position opened here at AM Corpus. I was like, you know, it I'm always works the, like that. Getting, it always works I'm like getting that. I'm getting the position for sure. And so, uh, yeah, it turned out I got the position. And then, of course, we moved down here. And that's that's and, sort and, of in my two careers. And you so. arrived on campus here at AM Corpus Christi and 
yeah, fall of 2002. Yeah. So as we, a we, young we, assistant yeah, professor. Yeah, you and I both yeah. uh, on campus here at the same time, fall 2002. And then, and then you and I show up here at at, at, H, at HRI, um, and I think being you know the same age and the same background, and I mean, and we had you know Paul Montagna was here at that time, Rich was here, Tom Shirley, I guess, yeah, and then Jim, Jim, yeah, and then you and I were the final two. But you know, you you and I being closer to age and experience and stuff, I think we just kind of you know glommed on to each other yeah. and, and yeah. you know I, I always I always go back to this because this is kind of the good old days when when you needed help doing sampling yeah <laughs> <laughs> hook and line That's, sampling yeah. those days that we could actually go out yeah. And, yeah. and be on the water together you know those were yeah. that was that was those were special times to be able to do that that, that was definitely the good days when we actually had time to do stuff like that right. now fortunately or unfortunately it depends on how you look at it, you know our, our crews get to do that so we we still yeah. very much active in there but you know now our our duties um if our time has been taken away from some other, yeah. not quite as fun activities. <laughs> it's, but, just, it's just what happens when, yeah. when things, uh, yeah. when, when you, when you progress. And what was it, you know, what was it about HRI that you said, ah, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm willing. And cause we were, it was a brand new operation. Yeah. I mean, still untested really mm-hmm. in, in, in the model and the approach. And you were here on campus, you know, you were in life sciences, uh, you had a faculty position there, mm-hmm. but then what, what was it about making this move here that? Yeah, well, funny enough, that's interesting you asked that because in the job announcement that, that that I put in for, I mean, I distinctly remember it said something to the effect of uh, your research interests need to mesh well with the Heart Research Institute. And yet at the time, I didn't even know what that was, you know, and of course it was just formed. Oh, yeah. Um, and, yeah. and I don't even think at the time those founding, of course, they were just forming the endowment was just really fresh. The building was not, I mean, literally the building was concrete pad when I moved here, you know, they were just, just beginning. Um, the building. So that was in your, that was in the original job announcement for the faculty position. Yeah. You needed to think about how you would interact with yeah. HR. Interesting. And something interesting, yeah. my faculty vision was the first one in like nine years or something like that. It was just unheard of. Now we're hiring new faculty to keep up with our growth like crazy. So, I was a little bit of a novelty because you hadn't had a new faculty in so long that Hart Institute was new and they were trying to navigate, well, what does that mean in the faculty linkages? So however that came mm-hmm. about in that, it said it should mesh. It wasn't an appointment by any means. But anyway, so I, I researched more and I, I, funny enough, talked to some leadership of where I was and they said, oh, yeah, Corpus has just got this huge endowment. There's a lot of things happening. And so anyway, that was all, you know, there was I saw the potential that was that was here yeah. and at the time, you know, it was no startup, you know, a lot of, you know, <laughs> teaching a minimum of three, sometimes four classes a semester, you know, yeah. it, was, it was a very, yeah. very different place. And so I took a big risk because, but I saw the potential yeah. and I knew I could work in the realm. You know, of course, I love this area for the outdoor opportunities and career opportunities in that realm. So anyway, it, obviously it worked out. And so I, um, HRI started integrating faculty is similar to what we do now, just with associates and those interested. Yeah. And it kind of just grew uh, from there. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, same story with me. I mean, I was in the College of Business, but, you know, my background, my my dissertation work was around water and water yeah. economics. And I had, you know, there was the Center for Coastal Studies here that West Tunnel mm-hmm. was, was leading. And I wanted to get involved with them. I mean, I was hired on here in the College of Business to do environmental, natural resource economics, but in the yeah. College of Business. 
and uh, but I there was no connection to any of the natural science side. So I went over to the this uh, Center for Coastal Studies and started to make that connection with them. And then there was yeah. then there was the f- first Gulf Summit, right? That was held yeah. here. And we had mm-hmm. you know several governors from around the Gulf of Mexico, Mexico and yeah. the U.S. There, you probably participated oh, yeah. in that. Yeah, <clears throat> and that was really where my integration with HRI started to happen. Yeah. You know, informally at first, but then kind of come on in these research professorship type of opportunities until both you and I became endowed chairs. In yeah. Yeah. And you may not even know, you know, cause I was around just a little bit before um, you had uh, shown up, you know, there were some proposals going on and, you know, I, I made a proposal about potentially doing like this junior chair thing. So I think it was probably a few months before I started really hearing about what, what you could do for the Institute. And it was really Paul Montagna, who was sort of more the, the true believer in the initial beginning. Of course, now we all are yeah. saying, oh, you know, God, we got to get these guys involved. And there's this guy named David Yaskowitz. You know, there's you could work in the water realm and all the stuff we do in the fisheries realm. You know, and so we sort of I don't know what how that initiated. If it was you know, well, lunches think, or just organically or what. Well, I think it know. was, you know, that, that's interesting that you bring that up. And I think it, it, it goes to the, you know, the the importance and the power of having mentors and advocates that can see you know because we're, yeah. we're junior fat i mean for us to be like go up you need to hire me right i yeah. mean they, we, we weren't we didn't have yeah. that level of cred yet yeah but paul saw it yeah. right and when larry came in he yeah. saw it and so they really you know pushed for us saying yeah you need to you need to get greg in you need to get david in to help yeah. complete this this model yeah and so i think that's you know and now i think we're in similar positions right to be able to look out and and bring people into the institute that yeah you know mesh well with the with the mission well that and you know at the time bob ferguson was the executive director because you know he is is uh, i'm sure many listeners may or may not know you know he had stepped down from the presidency he was going to retire as well but he wanted to make sure initially it was looked after and 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 taken care of based on the family wishes and so what's interesting i guess you know we've been here now through every director we've had now, <laughs> now right. we've each been or maybe each <clears throat> that's one. right and so then of course he, he was never intended to be permanent you know and th- and he worked to help identify larry of course who, who's yeah. who was immediate immediately pre- preceding you so anyway yeah it's so so i guess you and i have really been here literally from the ground well, up, yeah absolutely you know, so. absolutely yeah. okay i want um i want to get back to sharks for a moment yeah I know, I know you, uh, <clears throat> I know, I, how do you, how do you explain it? You say it, it it's about, you know, yeah. 95% of our exposure, but only about 10% of our work <laughs> yeah. or something like yeah. that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, of course we love doing shark research and yeah. that's what we get well known for. There are these charismatic animals that everybody connects with. Um, we like it because they're such great ambassadors for the ocean, because whether you're a little kid or further along in your life or whatever, everyone sort of has this fascination or connection with sharks. And so we can leverage that interest to yeah. teach people about why they should be good stewards of the ocean and good conservationists. And they don't even realize they're kind of learning, especially in schools too. The kids want to know about sharks and you teach all kind of things through, you know, how our sharks move and tag from geography to marine biology to, you know, yeah. you name it. But yeah, it's, so it's a relatively small amount of what we do, but of course, you know, big, big component. So. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of, you know, all the, all the uh, shows that you've done on, on Discovery Shark Week and now yeah. National Geographic this year, yeah. you know, uh, on, on their shark, um, <clears throat> their shark 
not dang shark fest. Shark yeah. fest. Sorry, okay, yeah. trying to keep those. Yeah, <laughs> they're not official sponsors of the Gulfstream <laughs> podcast. But, yeah, um, right. So yeah. you know, a lot of exposure through sharks, but but I wanted to come back to Sharkathon. So if you could mm-hmm. give you know our viewers and listeners a little bit of background on what Sharkathon is, and then really how your work and your team's work changed that model yeah. of what they were doing. Yeah. Well, to really understand what what that group has done very, very successfully, you, you kind of need to understand the history of sharks is that sharks have been really depleted, even in the Gulf of Mexico, but globally, but mainly because of the shark fin trade and the lucrative value of their fins and black market trade. I mean, they're selling for thousands of dollars for yeah. one one fin of a shark in some some instances. So it led to rapid depletion. In fact, even the federal government saw sharks as a underutilized resource and subsidized mm-hmm. fisheries to go after the sharks. Well, at the time, we didn't have the science to realize they're, they kind of have what we call the life history or, or the pattern of how they, they perpetuate of elephants. Let's say, you know, they're very slow to mature. They don't have many young. They, it's not something that can handle industrialized fishing. They just can't rebound or replenish that quickly. And that's what was happening. And so... Um, anyway, in the meantime, there was sort of this land-based shark fishery developing, particularly off the Padre Island National Seashore, where you're catching, you're really having big game fishing literally from the dry sand. They're, they're mm. casting out or kayaking baits out. And this group was really formed by a guy named Billy Sandifer, passed away. He was caught, kind of called the Padre of Padre, you know, meaning Padre <laughs> Island. Yeah. And, and he really started preaching conservation and he had strung up his fair share of huge sharks for the pictures, you know, and all everything that you see in those old photographs. You know, it's funny that you say uh, that because there's a classic photograph of, of Billy with, I guess, a client in this huge, I, I don't, I'm a, a tiger shark. Tiger yeah. shark. Yeah. And, and in that photo, he's not smiling. Yeah. You know, I you mean, know I've never noticed the, that. The client is know. smiling, but he's not smiling. Yeah. And I don't know if that was just Billy. I only know Billy a little bit, but I think he's, my guess is, is that you know, he wasn't happy having to yeah. take that big shark. Well, later in the beginning, he was, you know, sure. let's kill them all. You know, right, that's how right. everyone, you know, remember Jaws was there. It was like an ocean with less sharks is a good thing. Yeah. You know, all that. And and so that sort of had our mindsets that we need to remove these predators, which now, of course, we realize is the last thing you want to do for a, a healthy ocean. And so he went from really, let's kill them all. They're like, we've got to release every possible one we can kind of thing. And, and so that spurred cleanup events and all kind of things and out an outgrowth of that was the Sharkathon, which has turned out in the Guinness Book of World Records, the largest land-based shark tournament. And we saw that as opportunity that the anglers there became very conservation minded. In fact, they kind of through peer pressure forced other tournaments to convert to catch and release or those tournaments kind of went away and they kind of became the 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 Because it was a kill tournament. Oh yeah. Yeah. And sharks ended up in dumpsters after us, crazy kind of stuff. And so quickly people realized that, you know, it's just not something we need to be doing and recognizing the value of sharks in the ocean and all of that. Well, anyway, they started this this uh, catch and release tournament, and we worked closely with them to to say, well, God, that's a, they're so rare to begin with. What if we use all that manpower and all that effort that we never could do? We never have the resources or money or manpower to begin tagging these sharks. Yeah. And so we developed a citizen science program, and now we there we've tagged thousands. Well, well, just last weekend it occurred. And they tagged a record 200, close to almost 300 sharks, I think 270, wow. something like that. Wow. Tagged and released. And now part of the, the rules are you have to have one of our heart tags in the shark to be 
to get credit along uh, with a picture of huge. it. So yeah, that's a huge. So um, I don't have the exact numbers after this weekend, but we'll be approaching ten thousand sharks that they've tagged. There's just no way we could have yeah. could have. So like, it went um, it, it went from a all kill tournament mm -hmm. to a no kill tournament to a now you have to put a tag yeah. and release yeah. that shark on the Sharkathon weekend. And yeah. even since then, I mean, in the past few years, they there's the Texas Shark Rodeo, which is a sort of separate tournament that goes year round. And so you win by however many inches of shark you catch throughout the year. And same thing throughout the year, you have to have a tag. So you have to have a photograph with a special ruler. And part of the rules, you have to have a tag in, in, yeah. in those sharks. And so anyway, what's nice about that is now not only do we have just a weekend high effort after the sharks, we have a year round tagging. And these anglers are just out of control, supportive, and they can't get enough tag. You know, they're they're all in. And of course, they love to, to be part of the process and all yeah. that. So. Yeah. A big part of what we do here at HRI is is get involved. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean, in terms of the chairs and the and the staff, um, not just do science for science sake, but do something with it. And you <clears throat> have been a great example of that. So can you talk about some of the work that you've done outside of the Institute that has impacted management decisions around fisheries? Yeah. And, and so, uh, you know, we just sort of my philosophy and just interest has always been to do work that had a real practical meaning or there was some utility, direct utility for management or fishery science or just natural resource management in general. And so that was maybe why I think, you know, it's been such a good fit here at the Institute is because that's also our mission to ensure that our science, you know, we're doing world-class quality science at the Institute, but also that that is taken to the next level and implemented in, into policy or some type of management action. Mm -hmm. So one way to do that in, in the past leadership and through your leadership and others is for us to be very engaged in the process. And so that means uh, a lot of travel and a lot of work. It's yeah. not easy, but at the same time, we're very passionate. So we're more than happy to do that, but serve on committees and, and groups to ensure that the science is taken to the next level. So we serve in leadership roles. For example, the Texas Parks and Wildlife Department has a coastal resources advisory committee that we sit on and now some new chairs will actually be moving uh, mm -hmm. in on that as well here. Jimmy yeah. Pollock will yeah, be yeah. on that. That group um, advises the commission. What, of course, we advise them in a scientific capacity, but there's other constituents. Yeah. So that's a good example. Um, the other is, so I'm a member of the Gulf of Mexico Fishery Management Council, and that's a governor appointed and secretary of commerce uh, appointment uh, to manage federal fisheries in the Gulf of Mexico. And and that's quite a challenge, but we're right in the, the middle of, of that. And of course, we're a direct conduit to get science into yeah. that process. Yeah. So that's that's uh, really important for us. And, and each chair does very similar things in different capacities. So we work hard to be on high impact committees that influence natural resource <clears throat> management. Right. So that's that's one way. Then, of course, the other way through the Sport Fish Center is that's a major mission, what we call angler engagement, which means, you know, engaging anglers in the scientific process. That can be as simple as the tagging. We were talking about a Sharkathon, but also through our uh, Release Sense program, which is like Release Makes Sense, Release Sense. It's mm -hmm. a partnership with Shimano in the Coastal Conservation Association where we teach anglers to be wise stewards of the resource 
if we don't preach by any means, you should not retain fish to eat at some level because that's an important cultural aspect of the sport. Yeah. So we want to encourage that. But nowadays, many people want to practice catch and release and just keep a few for dinner. Well, what's the real science behind that? You, you want your fish to survive. And so we teach ways to do that from catching, you know, fish in inches of water, like redfish, for example, to, you know, hundreds of feet of water where you have to have different mm -hmm. techniques to ensure that those fish might survive that are coming up from deeper water. And that's what the release sense program. So that's a way we, we can influence the general public. Um, and then as well in the other realm, in the other hats that, that we're wearing institutionally, you know, we're, we're serving on state and federal agency yeah. type programs. So let's go back to the release sense for a moment. Um, so what is and, and different species, maybe different you know, ways that you would want to release. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about like, redfish. What, what's yeah. the best way to cat, you know, catch the redfish? You get a photograph and then you want to release it. But what's what's that process looks like? Yeah, like? well, the great news is almost all inshore species, trout, redfish, flounder, black drum, all the popular ones. They are exceptionally hardy and they have very, very high survival rates, yeah. really 90 percent. Um, in fact, we had trouble in our controls. You know, it's like if if you handle them properly, there's ju they just don't die, which is a great thing. So how do you handle? The, what's what, yeah? What's yeah? The so the the what we recommend you you get them in quickly. There's no problem snapping a picture. We heavily recommend boga grips, which are lip gripping tools, which minimize handling. You want to keep the slime layer on the fish. That's their sort of immune system and their protection kind of thing. But even even that is not that big of a deal. Um, the, the one thing that, that causes mortality is the hooking location. Yeah, yeah. So we did all kind of studies looking at where they're hooked in the eyes and the gills and the externally. What well, turns out if they've swallowed the hook, that's that's where there's a problem. Yeah. And it, it turns out of all those species, you have about 90 percent survivorship. We went from a catch and release mortality to catch and release survivorship study because they all lived. But about 10 percent of your fish where you get the 90 percent from the 10% of the fish that don't make it have swallowed the hook. And it's too deep. whether you pull it out, whether yeah. you clip it off, it's pretty much uh, those fish aren't going to make it. So it's a good, you know, it's a good thing to know because if you're going to keep a fish, well, you probably want to keep the ones that have swallowed the hook. If yeah. you're thinking about keeping a few for dinner. As long as they're in the limit. Well, of course, yeah. yeah. A, we have regulatory <laughs> you want to pay attention to, but as long as they're within the, the, the current uh, uh, limitations of your, your size and bag limits, of yeah. course, that's fine. So that's a, just a real practical example of, yeah. of how you can do it. But in reality, it's just, you know, minimizing the time of that fish out of the water and getting it back and snapping a few photos. There's no, we've done, we've, we got criticized early on we held them in cages, um, but technology advanced where we could put electronic tags in them. Yeah. So we've caught them, done a small surgery, stitched them up and released them and let them fend, you know, for themselves in the wild after heavily handling through surgeries and everything. This is trout, redfish, black drum, the whole suite of them. So let's talk about the t your tagging efforts for a little bit, because you've done you've done this inshore. You talked a little bit about the passive tags for sharks, but you also have these satellite tags that you deploy. So talk, can you talk about your tagging program just writ large? Yes. Yeah, so the, the tagging, the technology, David, we've got at our hands is just astonishing in the last 10 years and it gets better and better. You know, we're just like, like anything, we're in a rapid state of developing, you know, electric electronic capacities to do yeah. things. And so we used, we started off with the dart tags. Many people know you, you stick a dart into tag into the fish, 
you have to release that fish and rely on someone else to catch it and then return your tag. Yeah. Of course, that's simple and cheap. They're about a dollar a piece or less. And, and, but of course you don't know, you only know where that fish was released and where it was recovered again. Well, new technology came along where we could implant acoustic tags into the fish that send out a sound signal. And it, they're more expensive, but it requires you implant the, the tag into the body cavity with a small stitch. But what's nice is they can swim around and you have listening stations. And so you get more of a behavioral, a funny thing that we, we noticed from that tagging study is we'd put a dart tag in and the fish would be caught in a really popular fishing area and tagged and caught again in nearly the exact same spot. Traditionally, you would have said, well, that fish didn't move much because yeah, it, right. well, it turned out with our electronic tag and it had moved 70 miles in the past month before it was recaptured. It just happened <laughs> to be recaptured right on the, you know, we don't know why that is their natal homing or something, who knows. But but the, the point is that has a lot more information. Yeah. Of course, then the next thing came along, which was satellite tagging which um, it requires a large, little bit larger fish and we attach them to the dorsal fin of sharks or implant them in other fish such as cobia or what we call ling. And we follow them around through satellite networks and you, they, globally you can track them. And so that's the really high end. That's kind of the cool factor that everyone, you, know, you can open your smartphone and see where your favorite shark is today kind of thing. So that's some really powerful technology, especially for these migratory fish that may swim out of an acoustic array your, you know, your listening array and, and literally you track them anywhere on the planet. How long do those satellite tags last? They'll, we like? program them to do different things, but generally about a year to three years, depending upon the battery. It's all about battery life. Sure. And keeping the tag in, of course, the tags routinely come out and electronics and salt water don't always mesh, you know. <laughs> they don't work and well together. So they'll yeah. they might malfunction or whatever, but the but the data you get is worth, you know, the little glitches that you have. And yeah. So it's pretty amazing. I mean our Mako sharks that winter, right now they're showing up as we speak off the Texas coast. They might have been up in the northeast off New England or deep down in the Caribbean. And they come and go almost to the same spots year after year, which you never would have been able to really tell that with a dart tagging you might have gotten lucky and that sort of thing but we can look at real directed movement patterns yeah. with these satellite tags yeah so um so you know we talk about science to solutions here at hri and then you know that that final step is really about the implementation you're you are on the implementation side with serving on mm -hmm. the uh, fisheries management council yep right so that you are implementing policy mm -hmm. right i mean you are you are making decisions about how we manage our federal fisheries. Um, I'm going to be moving to Texas Parks and Wildlife Department here in a, mm -hmm. in a few weeks, which is an implementation, you know, management agency. Um, how do you see us continuing to work together um, as I move on into my new position and as you step into the, you know, executive director role here at the Institute? I mean, what what is... What is the benefit of me moving on in, in this yeah. grander scheme of managing our, our, our natural and living resources? Yeah, well, there's a, a lot of great news there in, in that realm. And, and that's obviously a really broad question, but there's some yeah. really positive aspects to that. I've been telling people, you know, of course, there's a little bit of shock when you announce that, that, that move and that sort yeah. of thing. But I've been telling people in reality, whatever real positions we're in, we're really all part of the same team, the broader team that's managing natural resources. We all really want the same thing in general. And, and so 
really wherever we're at there, we still can have a big impact. And, and of course, the good thing with, about Texas Parks and Wildlife is the Institute has well-established relationships that go back well, well before even our times um, here, here at the Institute. But since then, we formed direct relationships with not only the commissioners, but also the scientists and the different um, groups within the agency. I can't think of a chair here at the Institute that doesn't have some linkage, yeah. almost direct linkage to parks and wildlife, right. particularly folks like uh, Mike Wetz with his water quality, of course, Jenny and her habitat and our work with the fisheries and many, many others. So yeah. there's a lot of- I work with uh, water on the Well, of course, water, Paul. Yeah, yeah, I mean, absolutely. it's just, you know, go down the list. There's, yeah. I mean, we've been uh, very, very great partners. We've got a great relationship. We provide a big service for the agency, in my opinion. They're very busy doing the work that they do as they're charged with by the state and, and will be under your direction. But many times they don't have the time or resources to, to do the science that's needed. So we, we that's where we can play a role. And so back to your question is now that you're going to be able to see the details and the inner workings of mm -hmm. each each group and you'll be able to see where those synergies are. And so I imagine that yeah. I can't imagine that we'll have even better relationships and yeah. abilities to um generate the science that you're going to need to make the most informed decisions right. for the state of Texas. Well, and that's, you know, that's um, if you if you look at TPWD's uh, strategic plan, goal number mm -hmm. one, and there's a reason it's goal number one, is um, to, you know, do and integrate the best available science for res uh, for management. Yeah. And uh, I'm paraphrasing there. Yeah. But and, and I think that's, you know, that's an important part of me stepping into this role now. I mean, Carter has done a great job of bringing that forward, but I know that's, you know, really important to the commission. And so I think that, you know, me stepping in the, into that role, I can, I'm going to be able to look at the, through that lens for the, for the entire agency. Um, and I, I like the way that you frame this is that, you know, we're, there's this conservation enterprise right that exists yeah. out there and the, and there's the there's the academic science there's the implementing agencies there's the environmental ngos right but they're all part of this conservation enterprise and it just yeah. happens to be that i'm moving from you know this part of the enterprise to another part exactly. of the enterprise yeah. and i yeah. think it I, not to talk too long about me in particular but i think it i th you know i think at heart and with the vision of that original advisor council this kind of completes that yeah. that arc yeah, the science exactly. to the solution to the implementation. And I think you'd be very proud of that. I mean, yeah. the decisions that you're going to have to make in that new role in, in your team, you know, have to be grounded in good science. I mean, yeah. let's as you're saying, that's why that's the number one thing. Now, now the, the decisions always go with what right, right. No, we, I, with science, a, that'd be <laughs> exactly, easy. Yeah. You wouldn't need advisory panels. You wouldn't need a commission. Yeah, but, right. you know, there's obviously the whole human dimension yeah. side that comes into that. And that's where yeah. it really gets sticky. In fact, Katja, one of our, as you well know, one of our lead uh, team members around here just sent me an email yesterday in class. They were talking about we need more science on this committee because it never happens. You know, the decisions never get based on science. And I was like, you need to have me come talk because, you know, Science, of course, I'm a believer in science, but, you know, and, and why I think you're going to be so good in this this new yeah. position is that you understand that human side. You understand the social and economic implications yeah. of decisions. So a commissioner, for example, might know that the best science is to do A, but all of a sudden there's people's livelihoods. Yep. There's the economics of the state to consider and, you know, yep. a whole host of other things. And so together all those 
you know, come together to, to make whatever decision is made. But, but in the end, you, if you don't have that good science, you're really, you know, you could be making some decisions like what we just started with having a flounder size limit that's too low before they even reproduce. Right. (laughs) And so you need the basic science to say, well, wait a minute, the minimum has to be at least this um, to, you know, perpetuate the species. But, um, but anyway, so yeah, yeah. So I think having that, that depth of expertise and really what the Institute hears about is having, you know, a a broad interdisciplinary approach to problems is, is, you know, going to really be beneficial overall. So I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, as we close out here, Greg, so this is, this is, um, this is the original fishery bulletin 89. You know, yeah. you know, oh, I know this, this, right? yeah. you know this, yeah. Yeah. Gulf of Mexico, it's origin waters and marine life. So this back in 1959, 54. So look at, get, Look at the thickness of that. That's about maybe an inch and a half. That was all that was yeah. really known about the Gulf of Mexico back in 1954, yeah. right? Yeah. And, you know, West Tunnel led the effort to redo this. Um, geez, back in, I think they finished that, finally finished the whole series, maybe in about 2010, 2012, yeah, something like that, realm, yeah. which the whole yeah. series then was about this big. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So a lot more that we that we have learned about the Gulf of Mexico and, of course, much more every day. Um, Larry McKinney passed this on to me when I became executive director. Yeah. And so now I am passing All this right. on well, to you. Well, thank you to, to hold on to it and uh, share that with the with the next executive director. All right. Well, thanks, Dave. Yeah. I pre- that's that's great. And I will do the same, <laughs> you know, and that's good to keep, you know, a document like this. It's torn and ragged. And yeah. to say, you know, this is, you know, what what our origins are, of course, now, you know, we the sciences I mentioned is developing so rapidly. We could you know, this will even grow, you know, more yeah. and more. I'm sure. Absolutely. So. Absolutely. So. We always close this out. This is the second podcast, but we're, we're closing this out with a series of questions. These, these final questions have been partially adapted from James Lipton, who was, the, who was the host of the actor's studio, and he would always ask his guests a series of, of, of questions at the end. So uh, you, don't, you have not had these questions given to you beforehand. Okay. So um, I'm going to ask uh, several. Um, so the first one, what was the most... Or what was the first impact, first impactful interaction with the great outdoors that you remember? God, I, I, you know, distinctly remember as a child, you know, fishing for perch, what we call a brim, you know, sunfish, yeah. that bobber going down, <laughs> that little red and white bobber, you know, and, and that and you, and you were still, still burning my brain to this day. You yeah. know, that, you know, no matter if you're, you know, you're catching a thousand pound mako or, you know, a uh, four ounce, you know, yeah, bluegill, right. you know, yeah. that bobber going down still yeah. just sort of. What did you use? A piece of cheese? A, a worm. A worm. Not, okay. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, what sound or noise do you hate? Oh, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, uh, you, yeah, you're, you're putting me on the spot Don't here. Don't think too now, hard. So I'm it. thinking too hard. <laughs> so, uh, you know, traffic. Traffic. <laughs> so, okay. That yeah, works. That yeah, works. Yeah. Okay. What sound or noise do you love? Oh, peacefulness of the outdoors. No sound. Or the wind or the ocean on a yeah. calm morning as yeah. you're, you're out there. Yeah. So. What is your least favorite word? Can't. Can't. Okay. <laughs> what is your favorite word? 
Can. Can. <laughs> All right. Okay. What excites you about the future? Well, the the attitude that I'm seeing changing, if we talk about recreational fisheries where, where I focus, and the, the stewardship and the conservation-minded mm-hmm. of the young anglers coming up, yeah, I think we're in, we're in good shape. They those folks coming up want to do the right thing. They understand the resource. There's they love the resource, which is what you have to have in fishing or hunting. Right. <laughs> you don't have those people that truly love the resource and are willing to yep. to to give back. Um, but this new generation coming up is all about conservation and stewardship. So that's good. A very good thing. And and last question: What other profession would you rather be in? Than yeah. the one you're in now, you can't talk. That's, you can't. You can't say, yeah. "Well, I'd rather be." You know, what, what other one would you rather be? I in? always thought so I, was, I wanted to be an armchair theoretical physicist. You know, <laughs> sits there and thinks about space or you know, you you know big the old theory beard. of relativity. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've always thought about that, but yeah. So um, okay, anyway. theoretical physicist. That's right. All right, good. Yeah. Yeah. Great, great all talking right. with you. Man. Great doing this, Dave, and yeah. good luck with your new position. Thank so you. We're all happy for you. Thanks for listening to The Gulf Stream. If you enjoyed this episode, you can help make a difference in the Gulf by contributing to the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies research and efforts to create healthier coastal and marine ecosystems. Visit heartresearch.org. That's H-A-R-T-E research.org for more information. Please note, the views and opinions expressed by guests of the Gulf Stream do not necessarily reflect the views of the Heart Research Institute for Gulf of Mexico Studies or Texas A&M University Corpus Christi. It is our mission to be an honest broker, providing only science-based solutions to Gulf of Mexico problems and other environmental issues. This podcast is intended to provide our guests with a safe and open forum for them to express themselves freely.